Welcome to Sidactic Residency Edition. Today is Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. It has been some weeks since I was able to produce another episode, and I apologize for my absence. By apologizing, I, I just assume that you care. You probably don't, and actually, I, I have been able to produce one, I just haven't because I've done other things. By the way, I am a fourth-year psychiatry resident in the National Capital Region, and this podcast is about psychiatry, psychology, and neuroscience, and I really do it for my own benefit. I hope it benefits others as well, especially other psychiatry residents, but all are welcome. I produce this podcast alone in my home office, so you, as the listener, should be aware that I have no fact-checkers or editors that are smarter than me to moderate my content. That means what I say here is entirely my own opinion, so take that for what it's worth. Now let me start by disclosing something about myself. I remember starting full-tackle football in Oklahoma when I was in the fourth grade. I may be giving away my age here, and if you want to guess, you can go to sidactic.com and fill out the form there and guess my age. My younger brother started playing in the third grade because, well, he asked. And the coaches said, yeah, sure. It was a badge of pride to hurl your body at another person and in that tangled pile of flesh tumble to the ground and mostly get back up again. If I can quote a historical saying without being roasted on social media, flag football is for wusses. But in the past couple of decades, the glory that once was reserved for tough guys like my little brother has favored the wusses because the quote wusses unquote were far less likely to end up impaired in their ability to do things later in life, like balance a checkbook or maintain employment. The National Football League has served our country well as an experiment in what happens when adults repeatedly, and with the weight of a professional contract, hurl their body at someone else over and over and over and over again for a decade or more. The result is something that is not unique to the NFL, but still brilliantly shines a light on the thing we call chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Impacts shake, bruise, and disrupt the brain. When this happens over and over and over again, it results in something resembling dementia. Some researchers have even proposed that CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, results in an almost prion-like effect where misfolded proteins accumulate in the brain and then those cause more proteins to misfold and accelerating the process until there's dementia. There's really no consensus as to what exactly causes CTE, but what we do know is that injuring the brain over and over and over again should be avoided. I am going to disappoint you right now by not talking more about CTE. Instead, I'm going to talk about something far more common that's likely to present itself to a physician. A single brain injury. 
While working in a brain injury unit, I noticed that some providers who ended up referring patients to neurology or neuropsychiatry after a brain injury used the word severe when describing the injury. And this communicates something very specific that they may not realize they're communicating. Those of us seeing a patient after a brain injury may not know the specific terminology we're supposed to use, so this episode is meant to help the listener understand how brain injury experts classify these injuries. Let's start with a case. Adrian had a car accident four months ago during which they lost consciousness. They don't remember the details, but they do remember what happened just prior to the accident. They were on a country road looking at texts on their phone and the car in front of them stopped suddenly. When Adrian noticed, they swerved into a ditch and hit the side of a hill. The airbag deployed and Adrian remembers waking up a few moments later, somewhat disoriented. Someone was tapping on the window. The details are fuzzy, but they remember waiting for emergency responders and a tow truck and being taken to an emergency room for evaluation because they told the EMS they had lost consciousness. At the ED, Adrian had a CT scan that was negative for a bleed in their head or an injury in their neck. Their brief neurological exam was normal and they were discharged home a few hours later. Their spouse drove them home. They noted some neck stiffness, headaches, fatigue, and sensitivity to light that seemed to improve over the next few days. Adrian took four days off work and then returned and was able to perform pretty well, but needed some extra breaks to go to a quiet room occasionally because, well, headaches. Then Adrian decided to go to their psychiatrist who in general treats them for anxiety because Adrian noticed that they had developed a stutter. The stutter embarrassed them, and it was getting worse. Now they're also more irritable. They've lost their temper with their spouse, which is really out of character for Adrian. And they have more difficulty falling asleep, and now wake up frequently during the night or very early in the morning, which is a change from the past. They feel more and increasingly unfocused, and fatigued during the day. For the first time in their life, they have thoughts that life may not be worth living, but they have no plans for suicide. After sharing this with their psychiatrist, she writes a prescription for Tylenol for the headache, mirtazapine for sleep, increases their Zoloft, and orders an MRI, then refers them to neurology with a statement Severe brain injury, please evaluate and treat. Let's stop there for a moment. The first thing we need to do at this point is determine the medical severity of this brain injury. And this is very different from the gestalt that a patient presents with a week or two after an injury. Adrian, at the time of the injury, had a brief loss of consciousness and some confusion with difficulty recalling some of the details of events following the crash, but no episodic amnesia. Their structural imaging was normal. One detail that I didn't include was the Glasgow Coma Scale uh, that was taken by EMS when they arrived. Adrian was conscious 
eyes were open already, appeared oriented to the situation, and could tell the paramedics where the pain in their face and neck was, so their score was 15, the maximum score possible. All of this is to say that the brain injury was initially determined to be mild. Adrian was likely concussed from the accident, but not severely damaged according to most of the criteria out there. So we should back up here and define some terms. I mean, I said Adrian's brain injury was mild, but the psychiatrist described the injury as severe because Adrian was now presenting with quite a few new symptoms, some of which he'd never had before. Now, there is not one universally accepted criterion for what is a brain injury and how to classify its severity. The Department of Defense and Veterans Administration have produced criteria that are similar to many others, um, those by different medical societies, and they come from examining a population that has really high rates of TBIs. Military members are frequently in motor vehicle crashes or rollovers. They're exposed to blast injuries, shrapnel, bullets, falls, etc. I should mention that I do not speak for the DOD or the VA, even as I summarize their guidelines after this. This podcast is only my opinion, and this is just an interpretation of the work that others have done. I'm a psychiatry resident, not a brain injury expert. So here's um, a summary of the DOD VA definition of a TBI. A TBI is a traumatically induced structural injury and or physiological disruption of the brain function as a result of an external force that is indicated by a new onset or worsening of at least one of the following clinical signs immediately following the event. Any period of loss of or a decrease in the level of consciousness. Any loss of memory for events immediately before or after the injury. Any alteration in the mental state at the time of the injury, such as confusion, disorientation, slowed thinking, etc. Neurological deficits, things like weakness, loss of balance, change in vision, sensory loss, aphasia, etc. And these neurological deficits may or may not be transient. Or new-onset appearance of an intracranial lesion, something like a bleed or a structural abnormality that was not there before. Classifying the severity of brain injuries is even more tricky than simply defining it. The first thing to consider is the imaging. This can look for those intracranial lesions. In a mild TBI, imaging, usually a CT scan, and more rarely an MRI, is always normal. It doesn't have to be abnormal in like moderate or severe injuries, but if it's not normal, it's not mild. So loss of consciousness is another measure. For mild injuries, loss of consciousness is less than 30 minutes. For moderate injuries, It's greater than 30 minutes, but less than 24 hours. Severe injuries are any loss of consciousness greater than 24 hours. 
So using only these two criteria, we can have a severe TBI in a patient with normal imaging who is continuously unconscious for more than 24 hours following the injury. Now, I'm not sure if this would include patients who are medically sedated, but I imagine any injury that would require the patient to be sedated is a severe injury just using common sense. But that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to use medical criteria. A criteria that is similar to, but somewhat less than, loss of consciousness is an altered level of consciousness. Someone is not entirely unconscious, but something is obviously off. An altered level of consciousness is harder to define than a loss of consciousness, but clinically is often manifest by difficulty in becoming like fully responsive to the external or internal environment. A person may be somnolent, hard to arouse, but may be still able to respond briefly with some mumbling. They may be obtunded, where they seem conscious but disconnected from the environment or very, very slow to respond to something like pain. We can use words like confused, delirious, or stuporous. Mild alterations of consciousness occur at the time of injury up to 24 hours. Moderate or severe alteration of consciousness is persistent after 24 hours. So let me summarize a mild injury right here. Mild injury, there are no findings on imaging. They are unconscious for less than 30 minutes, and there is alteration of consciousness for less than 24 hours. For a moderate injury, you may or may not have findings on imaging. Your loss of consciousness is less than 24 hours, but greater than 30 minutes, and your alteration of consciousness is greater than 24 hours. Now, I should mention here that, like, this most severe rating always trumps everything else. So if you have, if you have one criteria that is severe, then you have a severe brain injury. Um, if you have criteria that are mild and moderate, then you have a moderate brain injury. They all have to be mild in order to have a mild brain injury. There are some more criteria. For example, for determining the brain injury's severity uh, according to an alteration of consciousness, usually we use the Glasgow Coma Scale. And this scale can be used at the time of injury and then again after 24 hours kind of as an objective measure of an alteration of consciousness because this scale measures three factors. One is the eye opening, the other is verbal response, and the last is motor response. And you can Google it to view how it's scored, but in general scores of 13 to 15 indicate like mild alteration of consciousness, 9 to 12 a moderate injury, and 3 to 8 a severe injury. The lowest possible score is 3. So you can't have a zero score. You wouldn't, if you had a zero score, it means you didn't do the scale. First responders and emergency and trauma physicians will laugh at you if you say there was a GCS of zero. So being able to use the GCS lets other physicians know that objective criteria were being applied for what is the alteration of consciousness. Another important note is that penetrating brain injuries, like where the dura mater, that's that thick outer layer of the brain, um, is breached. They really preclude the use of the GCS at 24 hours because of the work that is required to repair these injuries. So 
you know, these injuries usually require multiple surgeries or other procedures. So the picture gets really messy and you have a severe brain injury if you have penetrating trauma that breaks the dura mater. The criteria that we're talking about here are really applicable to closed head injuries, the ones that most people are going to present with. Another criteria that can differentiate between mild, moderate, and severe TBI is post-traumatic amnesia. Now, it's common for patients to have amnesia after a traumatic event, and amnesia is not considered an alteration in the level of consciousness. It is an alteration in memory. They may have retrograde amnesia for events prior to the TBI, especially for the same day, but it's less common for them to have retrograde amnesia for really distant events, but this is also possible. I may be wrong, but from what I read, the term post-traumatic amnesia specifically is a problem with memory consolidation, which means that it refers primarily to events during and following the traumatic event. Mild TBIs are expected to have post-traumatic amnesia of less than a day, moderate TBIs one to seven days, and severe TBIs for greater than seven days. It would be notable if a patient had significant amnesia for more distant events or like really familiar facts like the name of their wife or their dog uh, or where they lived or you know who their children are. That would be considered a uh, severe injury to like their memory functions if the TBI itself were a mild TBI. Let me stop right here and kind of ask a different question. What do I know about Adrian? So Adrian had a brief loss of consciousness at the time of injury, which is considered just mild. There was some brief confusion afterwards with some difficulty recalling a few details of the event, uh, but no post-traumatic amnesia after 24 hours still considered mild. There's structural imaging that was normal, which would be considered, well, mild or moderate or severe. <laughs> but their altered level of consciousness determined by the GCS was 15, which is consistent with a mild injury. And then a day later, they were still a GCS of 15. Had any of those criteria been moderate or severe, Adrian would increase in their classification, but that was not the case. So when the psychiatrist wrote the word severe in their referral, they were communicating something different than what was being understood by, say, a neurologist. The neurologist may be expecting someone with like a imaging findings or extended loss of consciousness or alterations of consciousness that still persist. Um, or significant amnesia. One of the criticisms of this symptom, this uh, classification system, is that like moderate or severe TBIs are very hard to distinguish from each other. Uh, the the one category that seems to have a lot more meaning is a mild TBI, but the difference between a moderate and a severe TBI clinically can be very difficult. Applying these t these criteria don't necessarily signify a different prognosis. Also, 
It's not uncommon for patients after a TBI, be it mild, moderate, or severe, to report worsening of psychiatric symptoms or new-onset symptoms like depression, especially depression. And a TBI is physically and psychologically traumatic. In the case of Adrian, it's reasonable to consult a neurologist who is an expert on finding neurological signs and symptoms of a brain injury that might have been missed by, say, me, a psychiatrist, but... I don't want to miss something like PTSD. One thing that I have not touched on here is that the psychiatrist ordered an MRI. And when protocoling an MRI for brain injury, um, there is a specific TBI protocol, especially for an MRI that happened uh, a while ago. And it can look for changes that are not apparent on a CT scan or an MRI at the time of the injury. So for psychiatry residents or attendings or anyone else out there, it's good to know this because it may be best to just defer the decision to get an MRI to someone else who knows what kind of protocol would be best for them to make decisions. In this episode, I have distracted the psychiatry residents and attendings in the audience with descriptions of things like stuttering, headaches, and sleep disturbances, while at the same time I tried to refocus our attention on how to describe and classify a traumatic brain injury. Often having more information can result in like suboptimal decisions. So sending Adrian to a neurologist or a neuropsychiatrist is reasonable. Describing the brain injury as, as severe is really more reflective of maybe our own reaction to a lot of new information than it is uh, to an understanding of it. I think this patient, Adrian, really could have benefited from the psychiatrist saying something like, you experienced a mild TBI, and we expect you to fully heal. If we seem overwhelmed by the reports of all the things the patient are telling us that it happened since the TBI, then uh, we might communicate through our actions some of that desperation. And if we're unable to explain to them, like, our motives for, say, getting neurology on board, uh, they might become fearful that something is a lot more wrong than it actually is. So for this example, I might say something like, Adrian, you experienced a traumatic event. Post-traumatic headaches are common and actually expected. And people also report concentration and attention issues. I am concerned about your stutter, but I also know that new stuttering is not usually a sign of a permanent brain injury. It's most frequently a sign that your brain is trying to make sense of some kind of distress that you're experiencing, and I fully expect it to improve over time with treatment, probably in the next few days to few weeks. I'm going to refer you to a neurologist who will be able to test whether there are signs of any permanent injury to your brain or your nerves. With a single traumatic brain injury, we expect that you'll make a full recovery within a few weeks. This evaluation will help us to decide whether we need to do anything more to support you through this. In the meantime, avoid doing any activities which might result in falls or hitting your head again because your brain needs time to heal. And a second injury during the healing process might be worse even though it's the same kind of injury than a single injury would be. Do you have any questions? 
Now, as psychiatrists, we also know that there will be patients who are going to Google or now chat GPT or use some other AI service to give them information to, to feed their fears. And that's a separate issue um, and one that will be a lot more relevant in the near future. But what we can do now is uh, instill confidence in our patients because we are ourselves at the very least competent and confident to be able to tell them that their TBI was mild. I am Dr. O, and this has been an episode of Sidactic Residency Edition. 